Greetings and welcome to episode 48 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today we're going to go back to the ocean and talk about Japan and Micronesia. All right, now today, to understand what were the area we're going to be talking about, you need to sort of visualize in your mind sort of a rough, crude map um, of the Pacific Ocean. All right, uh, to the uninitiated, it looks like a huge expanse of sea with some, you know, tiny little islands in there, sort of like when you look up to space and you see stars. The stars are very tiny, but there's a ton of space up there. Um, all right, so the Pacific Ocean is sort of similar. Um, we need to think about three major Pacific Island groups. All right, there's Micronesia, there's Melanesia, and there's Polynesia. All right, Micronesia is what Japan is going to get during the 50 years of the Japanese Empire. All right, um, what are these different island groups? Micronesia refers to pretty much all of the islands that are immediately east of the Philippines and north of the island of New Guinea. Um, New Guinea is the island that is the easternmost largest island in the Indonesian archipelago. All right. Um, if you're trying to think about, you know, from Japan, orient yourself here. You have the three main, the, well, the four main islands of, of Japan. Uh, then you go to the Ryukyuan Archipelago, stretching 700 miles until you hit Taiwan and, you know, sort of off the southeastern coast of China. The next island group south of Taiwan are the Philippines. Then when you get past the Philippines, you bump into the Indonesian Archipelago, in which you have three or four major islands and then hundreds thousands of uh, much, much smaller islands that stretch for, you know, I think something like 1,500, 2,000 miles. Uh, the width, I believe, is almost as wide as the United States from coast to coast. All right. And then the eastern part of Indonesia, the last major island is the island of New Guinea. Um, so, when you're at the Philippines, you go a little bit east, sort of north of, New of the eastern part of Indonesia. That's Micronesia. All right. Melanesia is a little bit more to the southeast. If you go east of the Indonesian archipelago, um, sort of east and southeast over there, northeast of Australia, all right, that's Melanesia. Uh, islands in, in uh, Melanesia, some of them are quite famous. Samoa is in Melanesia. Uh, Fiji is in Melanesia. Um, and then the third major island group, this one should be easier to sort of distinguish from the others because it's much farther away is Polynesia. Uh, and uh, this has, you know, very famous island groups, and, you, and they actually help us to define uh, where Polynesia is. So you think of Polynesia, you can think of the Polynesian Triangle. Uh, it has the shape of a triangle. If you look, you know, straight on to the Pacific Ocean from space, um, at each point of the triangle, you have Hawaii at the top, the Hawaiian archipelago is at the top of the triangle. Uh, the southwestern corner of the triangle is New Zealand. New Zealand is a part of Polynesia, uh, southeast of Australia. And then the southeastern uh, corner of the Polynesian triangle is Easter Island, uh, about 2,000 miles west of South America, of Chile. Okay, Micronesia, Melanesia, Polynesia. The major islands in Micronesia... You're going to have the island of Saipan, uh, which is where the Japanese are going to set up their main government apparatus once they take over Micronesia. You have the uh, island of Guam. Uh, Guam is an island that you've probably heard about before. This is actually belongs to the U.S. Um, and Guam is uh, where you know the United States has a major military base uh, to this day as well. Uh, Truk Lagoon is where the Japanese are going to set up their naval base um, in Micronesia. All right, so now that we're oriented here, it's sort of, you know, uh, Japan has Taiwan. They don't have the Philippines. They're not going to invade the Philippines until the, they declare war on the United States after Pearl Harbor. You know, that's 41, 42. Um, but east of Philippines, uh, they're going to acquire Micronesia in 1914, uh, you know, 25 years or so before they're actually going to take over uh, the Philippines itself. All right, what's the historical background here? Um, since the 16th century, 
Okay, uh, 400 years earlier. Uh, Micronesia, the Micronesian islands had been uh, 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 traded with and conquered by a revolving door of Western empires. Most of the names that the modern names that have been given to a lot of the islands can usually trace their etymology back to a Portuguese uh, 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 ship, uh, a Portuguese discovery. And uh, some of the names then would be Portuguese names that become indigenized or changed uh, in various ways over the centuries. After the Portuguese name a lot of these islands for the first time, at least on European maps, the Spanish will come in um, and take over many of the islands from the Portuguese. Uh, they'll refer to the area as the Spanish East Indies. And that will last for a long, long time until the late 19th century when the Germans of all people, the German Empire will finally take over most of Micronesia through purchase. In the late 19th century, when the Spanish Empire is crumbling everywhere around the world, um, and they lose the Spanish-American War with the United States, that ends up giving Cuba to the United States, um, and the Philippines as well, uh, Spain realizes we have, we're have we not going to be able to maintain uh, many of our far-flung uh, colonial dependencies anymore, and they decide before someone actually invades Micronesia, let's get what we can for it and sell it, and they eventually sell it to the Germans who are desperate to acquire overseas territories, especially in Asia. Uh, the Germans won't have it all that long, they're, they're no less than 20 years, uh, when the Japanese will get it during World War I, and then after World War II, the United States will come in and be sort of the new political steward for all of the Micronesian islands. Um, but even before 1914, um, there are already other countries that had individual islands here and there in Micronesia, even before uh, the uh, Japanese took over. It wasn't all just Germany. You had the United States, uh, had Guam, Wake Island, uh, Britain and Australia also had uh, small individual islands in there as well. Um, after the Japanese take over Micronesia, um, their you know, main conflict eventually will be with these Anglo powers, Britain, Australia, and and the United States, because those are the same powers who also control most of the islands in Melanesia, uh, a little bit farther to the southeast, and Polynesia, which you know, is, encompasses the huge triangular heart of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, the French, too, are in there uh, with uh, French Polynesia. But really, it's Britain and America that are going to be the, the chief Pacific powers. Um, understanding this geopolitical balance of power, the geography of the region in Oceania, in the Pacific Ocean, will help to bring clarity to Japanese perceptions of external threats. All right, they're thrilled to get Micronesia. Uh, during World War I, uh, but then they immediately realized that every time you get more territory, it brings you into closer conflict and competition with other powers who also have territory in those regions. Um, and the acquisition of Micronesia ends up putting the Japanese very close uh, to what are seen as highly strategic islands that uh, Britain, and especially the United States, the United States, as we'll see in a minute, more than Britain, the United States is very incensed um, that the Japanese are able to get Micronesia and they see it as a direct threat to their interests in the Pacific Ocean as as well. Um, now, um, how did the Japanese think about the South Seas uh, before they even got it? Uh, did they even know about this place? Was there a concept of the South of uh, Mic Micronesia um, before Japan actually acquired it in 1914, or was it totally fresh and new, something that they had never heard of before? And like, wow, what is this land? You know, these islands that we just got. Um, yes, as I sort of let slip a minute ago, they referred to it as the South Seas. N uh, Nanyo, uh, na Nanyo, the Japanese pronunciation of the Chinese characters for Nanyang. Uh, this literally the South Seas. Um, now, eventually, they will distinguish between the inner Nanyo and the outer Nanyo, the inner South Seas and the outer South Seas. The inner South Seas will later be uh, uh, seen to refer to Micronesia, and the outer South Seas will refer to Southeast Asia for the brief couple of years during World War II when they invade uh, Southeast Asia as well, Indonesia, Philippines, um, and uh, continental Southeast Asia, uh, French Indochina, essentially, and in, uh, British Burma. Um, in the last couple decades of the, 20, of the 19th century, the 1880s and the 1890s, um, there actually was this uh, discourse within China. There were educated elites, diplomats and scholars and whatnot, um, who started to think, you know, with uh, our, the expansion of Japanese interest abroad in the 1890s when they got Taiwan, there was this uh, growing belief that uh, it, it seemed natural that Japan would expand to more islands in the Pacific Ocean. We are an island nation ourself. All right, that's one thing that distinguishes us from uh, the other major East Asian powers. The other ones are continental. 
we are an island nation. So it makes sense for us, especially after they got the Ryukyu Islands and Taiwan, which are also islands. Um, you know, there's just sort of the, the sense of inevitability. Uh, it makes sense that Japan is the most proper um, and most suitable steward for other island nations, uh, because we're already an island nation. Uh, it's the plus, it's the next step south. Okinawa, the Ryukyus, Taiwan, um, and then Micronesia. Um, you know, sort of conveniently sidestepping the fact that the Philippines actually is the next island group south. Uh, but the Philippines, that'll come later. Uh, don't bite off more than you can chew too early. The Meiji era official, Takekoshi Yosubura, said that Japan must realize, quote, it is our great task as a people to turn the Pacific into a Japanese lake, all right, giving voice to this idea that it's our natural point of expansion uh, to incorporate more islands. All right, the uh, uh, writer and official, Meiji writer and official, Shiga Shigetaka, in 1890, after he got back from a trip from the South Seas, long before Japan actually had any uh, real, real territory down there, he said, quote, Every year, on the anniversary of Emperor Jimu's accession and on the anniversary of his passing, we should ceremonially increase the territory of the Japanese Empire, even if it only be in small measure. Our naval vessels on each of these days should sail to a still unclaimed island, occupy it, and hoist the rising sun. If there is no island, rocks and stones will do. Some will say that this is child's play. It is not. Not only would such a program have direct value as a practical experience to our Navy, but it would excite an expeditionary spirit in the demoralized Japanese race. This is 1890. This is even before Taiwan. Right, invoking the myth of this uh, fanciful Emperor Jimu, uh, you know, who supposedly existed thousands and thousands of years ago, um, on the anniversary of his death, um, we should uh, go down and find islands in Micronesia, in the South Seas, they're not referring to it as Micronesia, um, and claim islands, sort of give us some, some batting practice, so to speak, <laughs> uh, Im Im imperial batting practice. Um, you know, here he's still saying unclaimed island, he's not trying to pick a fight with uh, the other major powers, but uh, there is an idea that uh, this is something that it is Japan's natural destiny to do, is to expand into the South Seas. Unfortunately, at this time period, pretty much all these islands are already claimed by other outsiders, uh, other powerful outsiders. And it's not until World War I that opportunity is going to knock. All right, let's talk about World War I and the key concept, you need, the key phrase you need to understand here of what's going to happen in World War I and that surrounds and enables the Japanese acquisition of Micronesia is the mandate system. All right, the first global conflict among Western empires, in which Western empires have now spread around the world, um, and these empires are now fighting each other, and the uh, resolution of this war will impact the empires and their far-flung territories all throughout the world. All right? There's no fighting in Asia during World War I, but Germany, as we know, is going to lose its Asian colonies as a result of losing the war. Okay, uh, this will give the Japan the opportunity to encroach upon the colonial holdings of the biggest Western loser. That's Germany. Now, we already know, in our last episode, we already talked about what Japan did in China during World War I. All right, trying to strong-arm Yuan Shikai, back to, I guess, warlords, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, what they did in China during World War I um, with the 21 demands and what, you know, their various activities in the 1910s and the 1920s. None of that constituted a wholesale transfer of Chinese political sovereignty. They didn't actually formally take off any chunk of Chinese land. All right, it's a bunch of new treaties and paperwork um, and pressure and uh, you know those sort of things, uh, leases. Um, but it's not actually taking land and saying this is now a formal part of the Japanese Empire. The fiction of domestic sovereignty, well, it's not even really a fiction at this point, you know, domestic sovereignty is still maintained. The facade of domestic sovereignty, even if Japan is pressuring Chinese leaders to act in certain ways. Okay. Uh, Micronesia, however, all right, you know, the Germans have two fronts. They have two colonial major territories in Asia. They have uh, interest in Shandong and the town of Qingdao, uh, which the Japanese are going to take over in lease form. Um, and then they also have Micronesia. Now, Micronesia is actual real colonial territory. 
All right, not just the fictional, we're maintaining the fiction of domestic sovereignty. How is Japan going to take over Micronesia um, when the war is concluded? How are you going to you know, make this uh, all look nice on paper? The new system is called the Mandate System. Uh, after the war, you get the creation of what is known as the League of Nations. The League of Nations is the predecessor to the United Nations. All right, uh, the League of Nations, the idea is that we are going to create some sort of international organization that will help prevent, uh, you know, major destabilizing violent conflicts like World War I, so things like this can never happen. Um, and one of the things that the League of Nations does is that it has to deal with uh, the dissolution, the dismemberment, we might say, of the empires that lost World War I. Um, and of the empires that lost World War I, the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East um, and the German Empire had significant overseas colonial territories that had to be dealt with. Okay? Um, you lost the war, so you're not going to be able to keep this stuff. The winners are going to take over it. All right, but how the winners are going to divide this up, how they're going to justify taking over someone else's colonies, that's where the League of Nations comes in and they come up with the idea of uh, giving mandates to the victors. What's going to happen here is that the League of Nations will formally then transfer the colonies of the defeated empires to victorious empires in so-called legitimate guise. What is legitimate guise? What is the legitimate transfer of one colony of a colony from one imperial power to another? How do you justify this? Why shouldn't the why shouldn't it just be independent? All right, the Ottoman Empire, uh, you lost the war, uh, so you're not going to be able to keep Palestine or Syria or Iraq or Lebanon anymore. Uh, why not just say, okay, well, they'll be independent states now. Why give them to the French and the British? All right, legitimate guys in the 1920s. That means that you were supposed to respect and help build nations. It's all about nations. Heck, the organization itself is called the League of Nations, even though it's dominated by empires, multi-ethnic empires. The idea, however, which takes root uh, really after World War I especially, is that the uh, most ideal and uh, natural uh, state of political organization is supposed to be uh, you divide the world's nations uh, into separate groups and give them a political plot of territory that often bears their name and aligns as perfectly as possible with the ethnic identity of the majority of people in that state. And ideally, each state just has one, one people. Okay? Um, and that's it. Armenia just has Armenians. Okay? Um, and that is the idea behind the nation-state. The nation-state. The ideal form of political organization in the modern world, uh, which we all pay lip service to, and we all act like these things actually exist, and they don't. There's no such thing as a nation-state. There is no such thing as any place on the world where nation, i.e. ethnicity or race, uh, which we already know is an invented concept, aligns perfectly with political boundaries. That's just not the way humans work. We're constantly moving, we're constantly migrating, we're constantly intermixing. Political bo uh, uh, borders change um, at the you know, drop of a pin uh, for ambiguous and flippant, uh, capricious regions that no one can predict. And that's why we get these weird, bizarre political borders and mixing of peoples that no one could have ever you know, predicted. Uh, it's all a result of the greatest powers in the world uh, trying to divvy up the land and people and resources in a way that benefits them, and you end up with crazy political boundaries and crazy ethnic you know, identities that are all mixed up together as well. But anyways, this is what you're supposed to do in the 20th century. All right. If you are on the side of good, if you are a benevolent, uh, you know, world power, you are supposed to justify all of your great power moves, all of the things that you do in your own self-interest. You have to justify them in terms of uh, creating and preserving nations. And if you successfully divide the world into perfectly aligned nation states, then that'll solve all the conflict in the world. Because conflict is imagined to uh, result from different ethnic uh, ethnicities, different nations, uh, coming into conflict for the same resources. So if a state only has one nation, then it's not going to have conflict with the next nation uh, across its borders. 
All right. This is a very idealistic way of seeing the world, but we often very lazily and passively, we still actually give lip service to this ideal, even though there's no such thing as a nation state anywhere actually existing in the world. And even if there was, by some miracle, we could actually create a nation state, uh, a human beings' natural inclination to move around and migrate and let other people in your state and, you know, intermarry and all these sort of things. And just the natural evolution of languages and identities and culture uh, would mean that even if you could buy a miracle create a nation state for one minute, uh, uh, you know, the very next minute, it would not be a homogenous nation state anymore. Um, anyways, this is what um, uh, guides the dismemberment of the loser empires in World War One. We're not going to let these states become independent because they're too immature. They aren't ready for modern, full nationhood. Na what did I say? Na 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 nationhood? Nationhood. So they need to have the more advanced powers of the world fulfill the mandate, the noble burden of a mandate, to shepherd backward and ungovernable nations into modernity, into unity, into prosperity. And if we siphon off a few of your, you know, uh, oil rigs and, uh, you know, resources and uh, 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 rubber stores while we're there uh, trying to bring you into the modern world. Uh, well, then that's the price of doing business. We have to have something for our troubles of enlightening you and dragging you into modernity. Now, German aggression, uh, you know, the winners get to decide what the Germans did. And who's at fault for the war? That's how war always works. Uh, the war crimes of the winners are always glossed over. That's going to happen in World War II. We'll talk about that, you know, several episodes down the line. Uh, war crimes of the victors are not war crimes. <laughs> That's just what you had to do uh, in order to overcome the war crimes of the evil losers. So German aggression discredits them as a premier advanced civilized world power. Um, they're only suitable now to govern the German nation. And uh, they need to get back and get their own house in order before they can become an imperial power and help other people get their house in order now. So, Japan loses its colonies. Same with the Ottoman Empire. You're not a civilized modern empire. If you were, you wouldn't have fought us because that's the height of folly and craziness. So clearly, you're not as advanced as we are. But Germany then, also, uh, Germany, Japan, is going then to be one of the victorious powers in World War I, technically a victorious power, they didn't really fight, um, that now gets to assume the quote-unquote noble burden that the Germans once had but have now lost. Britain and France will also get mandates. Britain will get uh, Britain and France will divide up the remnants of the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East. Uh, Britain will take over Palestine and Iraq. Uh, France will take over Syria and Lebanon. And to make their rule look like it's altruistic and benevolent and not just a power grab for resources and influence in the Middle East, they, you know, they, they use the mandate system. We've been given a mandate by a global organization that all civilized nations subscribe to uh, that says we have the mandate. Essentially the order, the, the, the burden, the responsibility, the obligation to shepherd these poor um, backward countries into the modern era. And once they can finally rule themselves will withdraw and the mandate will be rescinded. All right, mandates are assumed to be temporary. They're supposed to be temporary. We're just here until the natives can rule themselves peacefully and learn how democracy works and then we'll leave. Okay, the League's own nation, the League of Nations' uh, own language about mandates said that, quote, Territories inhabited by peoples not yet able to stand by themselves under the strenuous conditions of the modern world will be governed under the mandate system. All right, the modern world is so stressful. <laughs> the strenuous conditions of the modern world, they can't take it. They can't take it. Um, and so, you know, the more mature countries, uh, we can take it. Um, and we'll, 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 we'll hold your hand as you walk down the aisle of modernity. Um, and then once we get to the altar, we'll let you go and you can marry your nation and we'll have the marriage of nation and territorial boundaries and you'll be a full-fledged nation state. Now, in reality, mandates could continue indefinitely, depending on circumstances, how you justify your presence and the degree of political protest. Every single time there's some sort of protest or uprising against your rule, you just say, ah, it's destabilized. They're not ready to rule themselves. We need to be here longer. You can always come up with some bullshit excuse of why you can't leave. Okay. Um, however, 
This was the one and only instance of a Japanese colony during the 50 years of empire um, that where Japan was subject to nominal third-party oversight. Japan had to submit an annual report with the League of Nations Council every year, proving their fulfillment of four criteria that governed the mandate system. One, they had to show that they promote to the utmost the material and moral well-being and social progress of the indigenous populations. You're not just in this for you. You're going to improve the natives. Material and moral well-being. God, I love that language. They put morals in there. Uh, I would love to know how they subjectively interpreted that. Um, two, you will control the traffic in arms and ammunition. This can't just be a lawless land where you know uh, uh, gangs and bandits and terrorists are going to be able to recoup and plot their next attack. Um, three, you will ensure freedom of conscience and worship. It's going to be free religion. This is one of the really important things that led to number four, respect the rights of missionaries. Make sure that there's freedom of religion, not for freedom of religion's own sake, but to make sure that our missionaries, Western missionaries, still have access to these places um, and you're not going to kick them out and replace them with Shintoism or something like that. Uh, Christian missionaries should still be able to uh, live and work in these territories and you're not going to kick us all out just because you now are the political overlords of this uh, of, of, of this mandate territory and its peoples. Now, Japan was enthusiastic about the mandate system. Just like in 1895, the Sino-Japanese War, 1901, the Boxer War, and all the treaties and things that they got to sign on to as a result of that in China, um, this is another affirmation that Japan has entered that exclusive White man's empire club. Not everyone gets a mandate, right? Britain, France, and Japan. Wow, isn't that nice? Look how prestigious we are that we're getting a mandate. And heck, we didn't even have to fight in World War I. We just joined on their side and gave logistical support. Now, here's the catch for Japan. They're not the only empire that got a South Seas mandate, that got a mandate in, in the Pacific Ocean, however. All right. There was complex wheeling and dealing here behind the scenes, which should remind us that this is not all in the altruistic pursuit of creating you know, nice nation states that will prevent conflict in the future. A mandate system is a rhetorical smokescreen for the great powers to pursue their own interests and make it look good in an era in which nationalism is valorized and it's seen as the basis of political legitimacy. The United States was vehemently opposed to Japan acquiring Micronesia from the Germans. They said, this is going to threaten our, our, our ownership of Guam. It's going to threaten our interest in the Philippines, which they've had since 1898. And it's going to eventually uh, threaten our presence in Hawaii as well. Even though Hawaii is pretty far away from Micronesia, it doesn't matter. It's all the Pacific Ocean. And the United States was not afraid of the German presence. I mean, the Germans didn't do a whole lot in Micronesia. It seemed to the United States the Germans are fairly symbolic presence, and they're much more rooted in Europe. Uh, they're not going to be able to send significant resources uh, to Micronesia. The United States was fine with Germany having Micronesia. Um, but it believes that Japan is much closer. And is th- this constitutes sort of, yeah, a natural extension of the Japanese island empire. Um, and this was a serious presence that they thought was far more threatening than innocuous and distant and distracted Germany. However, Britain was in charge of the negotiations and uh, how this mandate was going to be awarded. Britain is still carries more weight than the United States does at this point. And they want Germany kicked out of Asia because it's a much closer rival to them back in Europe. And Britain got something in return for itself. They got New Guinea, the island of New Guinea. Now, New Guinea is the name. Uh, this is very complicated, so, you know, put on your seatbelt right now, okay? Because I need to get you to understand some geography and politics here, which is very complicated. New Guinea is the name of the largest easternmost island in the Indonesian archipelago. All right, there's three or four huge islands in the Indonesian island chain. Uh, New Guinea is the eastern one of these. It's not the last island. There's other much smaller islands. But as far as the heavy hitter islands, uh, New Guinea is the most eastern one. Okay. Um, however, the island of New Guinea is politically divided into two different states. Papua New Guinea is in the east. This is, this is today, all right? Western New Guinea, or West Papua, is an Indonesian province today, which means that before, right, before all of this, um, Eastern New Guinea 
Eastern New Guinea um, would belong to the British. All right, they're going to get the eastern half of that island. The western half, however, the western half initially would have been part of Dutch Indonesia. All right, today it's a part of Indonesia. So you have this island, um, and politically it's divided into different states. All right, it's divided into different states. Now Britain is getting the eastern half of this island. And then we have to further complicate things. Uh, the eastern half of the island will become known as Papua New Guinea. Today, Papua New Guinea is an independent state. It wasn't back then. Just the eastern part is again divided into two parts. The northern half, sort of the northeastern quadrant of the island of New Guinea, uh, was German New Guinea. And the southern or southeastern quadrant of uh, New Guinea was British. I told you this was complex, right? Um, I even had a big long pause there where I was trying to get all my, my names and terms and empires figured out to make sure I got this all right because I don't want to mislead you. Um, so Britain negotiates so that they can make sure that Japan is okay with them getting the northeastern sector of the island of New Guinea. All right. So then Britain has the entire eastern half of the island of New Guinea when they take one-fourth of it away from the Germans. That's what they wanted. That's what they wanted in part of all these negotiations. And then Britain will eventually sort of allow the Australians to take over. All right, they will allow the Australians to take over uh, the entire eastern half um, of uh, the island of New Guinea during World War I. And then afterwards, they say, okay, we're going to paper over all this. During the war with the Germans, uh, we uh, uh, allowed the Australians, who are, you know, this part of the British Empire, uh, to invade and kick the Germans out of the, northern, the northeastern part of uh, the island of New Guinea. And now we're going to make that formally a part of the British Empire. And that becomes an Australian mandate. Now, from the Japanese perspective, Australian-British doesn't make one, you know, much of a difference. You're just sort of splitting hairs here. To them, it's a major Anglo power. All right, even though technically the Australians have the mandate uh, to take over that northeastern sector of New Guinea. Now, why do we care about all this? Why do we need to get these details you know, down so well? Because we are beginning to see the seeds of the battlefields that will be so horrific and strategic during World War II. Okay, Japan will want to kick the Australians out of Australian Guinea, which was previously British Guinea and German Guinea, and then they went to the Australians via the British. Um, and it's going to be uh, Japan trying to kick the Australians, and by extension the British, out of the eastern half of New Guinea. Because during World War II, they're going to invade Dutch Indonesia. Um, and uh, you don't have control of the entire Indonesian archipelago if you haven't taken over the half uh, uh, sector of the island of New Guinea, where you have your mortal enemy uh, running a mandate system, the Australian mandate. Now, in the beginning, the only League of Nations restriction that was imposed upon Japan was that they're not allowed to build any military fortifications in Micronesia. All right, you can't turn this into sort of a military training ground uh, where you could launch invasions of other, of other empires. All right. And for about 15 years, uh, historians think that Japan probably complied with this system. They probably were in compliance with this system and didn't make any sort of major military fortifications. Um, and there were you know, inspections. Uh, League of Nations agents would come and uh, travel through the islands. This seems to have changed in about 1931-1932, when the Japanese take over Manchuria and create the puppet state of Manchukuo. Uh, they will then withdraw from the League. That's, that's a development on the horizon as well. Uh, once the Japanese take over uh, northeastern China in the early 1930s, they will withdraw from the League of Nations. And then it's believed that they probably did start to use Micronesia as a strategic military base and started creating military fortifications. All right, And there were increasing suspicions among the Americans, the British, the Australians, that the Japanese in the 1930s were starting to do uh, what to them were sinister things on Micronesia, uh, actually using it as uh, you know, a, 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 a naval base. 
essentially. Um, and this also would give rise to the persistent rumors, uh, which are still around today, that the American uh, pioneering female navigator Amelia Earhart, uh, when her plane went down in 1937, uh, there were rumors at the time, and still today, although they're almost certainly unfounded, that she was actually probably shot down by the Japanese because she flew over uh, uh, Micronesian islands and saw uh, aerial evidence of Japanese military fortifications and therefore they shot her down and covered up the whole thing. All right. Um, but that also sort of plays into the idea that, uh, you know, Japan uh, was supposed to adhere to the League of Nations restriction against military fortifications uh, and did for about half the time that they had Micronesia, okay? And then eventually when they invade uh, Southeast Asia in 1941 and 1942, they will use Micronesia as a staging base for uh, the takeover of Southeast Asia. Ultimately, the fiercest and most horrendous warfare of World War II will occur in Micronesia. Once Japan does its sort of blitzkrieg invasion of Southeast Asia and the island of, of New, New Guinea, both the Dutch half on the west and the, the British slash Australian half on the eastern part of the island, um, and then all the other island chains that are in the vicinity in Micronesia and Melanesia, um, uh, the United States and Australians and the British will gradually return and try to retake these islands. All right, And eventually the defeat of the Japanese Empire from the Pacific Theater will basically go in the reverse order that these Pacific islands were originally acquired by Japan. And the eventual loss, the retreat from the Micronesian islands was the beginning of the end for the Japanese empire. Uh, because uh, once the United States finally took over Micronesia and got it back, uh, they used it as a base from which their planes could actually reach Tokyo for the first time on a single flyover and bomb Tokyo. Um, and return to their uh, uh, landing strip on a Micronesian island at the exact same time. Uh, once that was possible, um, then the home islands were directly threatened. Uh, so you can see how Micronesia strategically would become extremely important over the course of the last couple decades of the Japanese Empire. What about the Micronesians themselves? Uh, we'll get to sort of the Japanese governance of Micronesia, but most Micronesians uh, uh, seem to have viewed World War II as largely an outside affair. Um, you know, now it's uh, the Germans, now it's the Japanese, now here's the Americans, the British, the Australians, all fighting themselves, and, uh, you know, pretty much they're all taking what they need from our islands in a military context, which doesn't, you know, allow a ton of negotiation. Um, and, uh, you know, generally speaking, uh, a lot of them, uh, like people on Taiwan, uh, were willing to switch loyalties fairly easily. All right. There often was not some sort of a long-standing, cohesive, um, political, independent political identity that had to be reckoned with. Um, you know, the outsiders who are coming to our islands are overwhelmingly more powerful than us. There's not a whole lot we can do about this state of affairs. Let's make the best of it and cooperate with whoever has the most guns uh, because we can't possibly um, really defend our islands for our own sake, for any sort of an independent agenda. All right. Um, after after uh, World War II, sort of a little preview here, the Japanese will be repatriated to the Japanese islands. They will be seen as illegitimate settlers, the Japanese who have actually, you know, started a new life on the islands. You don't live here. You don't belong here. You have to go back to Japan. Um, and that'll occur in 1945, the late, uh, the late 1940s. And eventually all the islands of Micronesia will fall under U.S., British, or Australian control, uh, mostly the United States. Um, and eventually most of them will gradually gain their independence. Um, and now, you know, if you pay attention to these sort of things, it's a very popular destination for various reality TV shows like Survivor uh, that often go to Micronesia, Melanesia, um, in order to have, you know, sort of the their backdrop of an exotic, slightly savage land. Uh, so sculpture, the cultural pejorative cultural stereotypes um, that uh, are often imposed on my, uh, these islands today. We're going to see in a moment the Japanese also did that as well. Okay, um, and Micronesia would also continue to be a prominent tourist destination for Japanese. Even when they're kicked out of the islands politically, um, the Japanese tourists will actually have a pretty pretty unbroken string of uh, opportunities to visit uh, Micronesian islands throughout the entirety of the 20th century, uh, before they had the mandate, during the mandate, and after the mandate also. Um, all right, now, what was the Japanese colonial presence like on Micronesia from 1914 to when they finally get kicked off the islands in 1944? 
Um, there, 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 there was a large influx of Japanese settlers relative to the indigenous population. Okay, it was uh, fairly sparsely settled. There was a small number of non-Japanese uh, natives um, who, as I said before, generally lacked a strong independent political consciousness or any sort of political unity that stretched among many different islands. This is going to inhibit your ability to resist outsiders uh, who are as powerful as the Japanese, the Americans, or the British. Um, the natives, give you some numbers, the natives were almost always outnumbered in most of the major islands. On the island of Palau, the uh, indigenous peoples were outnumbered by the Japanese by a ratio of 2 to 1. In the Mariana Islands, they were outnumbered by a ratio of 10 Japanese to every one indigenous Mariana uh, uh, native. Um, by 1930, 20,000 Japanese had settled in Micronesia. By 1935, 50,000 Japanese had settled in Micronesia. What is the total native population of these islands cumulatively at the same time? 50,000, which means you have a one-to-one -one ratio over the entire stretch of, my, of uh, Micronesia. And then on individual islands, that ratio can be as high as 10 to 1 in favor of the Japanese. Now, such massive migration was also in violation of the mandate, uh, but to be fair, uh, we might note that all of the mandate powers violated uh, various aspects of their mandates as well, so Japan isn't exactly unique in this respect. Um, had Japanese rule continued, this is always a counterfactual question that's impossible to answer, but we can take educated speculative uh, guess, uh, guesses. If the Japanese somehow managed to hold on to Micronesia, it likely would have been totally assimilated on the model of Hokkaido and Okinawa and probably uh, Taiwan. Okay, uh, probably would have been successful in the way that uh, their rule on Taiwan was uh, successful because you had fairly favorable circumstances. Again, unlike Korea and China, you don't have a strong pre-existing uh, sense of political autonomy that's going to lead to the ability to marshal significant resources uh, to resist the outsiders, um, and you don't also have sort of you know overwhelmingly uh, developed agricultural sector that doesn't allow for a whole lot of new investment. Okay, uh, Japanese rule in Micronesia will basically be a carbon copy of their rule on Taiwan, uh, a two-tier educational track, uh, all you know, white-collar jobs, government jobs taken by the Japanese. Uh, the government is dominated by Japanese uh, agriculture, uh, will often be dominated by Japanese immigrants from Okinawa, so essentially Ryukians. Uh, who are said to be particularly suitable for Micronesian climate because they're already accustomed to warm weather, unlike many of the Japanese from the uh, uh, northern island of Honshu. Uh, the Micronesian islands, many of them, uh, would also be subject to a, 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 a new, uh, the imposition of a new agricultural monoculture. Uh, you have to produce a single commodity that the home islands, that the home metropole, Japan, desires so that they don't have to grow this back at home, so they can free up their economy uh, to, to do other things. Um, and so most Micronesian islands would be devoted, to, uh, would have to reorient their agricultural production to sugar, uh, to fill Japan's needs for sugar. By the 1930s, 60% of the Micronesian economy was uh, consumed with uh, producing sugar for exportation to the Japanese home islands. Many of the prominent Micronesian chiefs uh, would be then also co-opted by the Japanese state. They would be invited to go on visits to Japan. Uh, oftentimes, Japanese educational uh, opportunities would be made available, sort of the same way that they would be made available on Taiwan. Uh, we're going to have some Japanese schools. Uh, you're welcome to attend them. Um, if you attend them, you're going to be learning Japanese language. You're going to be uh, you know, accustomed to Japanese culture. And if you do this, you might have some modest opportunities um, to make a living. Um, you're not going to rise as high as most Japanese are, uh, but nevertheless, uh, you will be uh, granted some sort of uh, morsels of the uh, Japanese economic opportunities that exist throughout the empire. Um, however, unlike what's going to eventually happen with Taiwan and Korea, Micronesia will never be slated for the uh, obtaining any sort of political rights or political representation um, in various government institutions back in Tokyo. All right. Um, now, the last thing that I sort of want to highlight here before we end our, uh, you know, a somewhat shorter uh, lecture on Micronesia is uh, cultural interpretations that Japanese uh, would produce uh, regarding the South Seas. All right. The South Seas for most of the Japanese empire, the South Seas are Micronesia, even though they will eventually get much more than Micronesia. Um, Micronesia is the uh, area of the island area, you know, island uh 
lands, regions to the south of the uh, Japanese Empire that are seen as sort of an unclaimed frontier. Um, and uh, what I want to talk about, uh, finish this podcast episode up with, is uh, a very famous cartoon that got produced um, during the 1920s and the 1930s, uh, known as The Adventures of Dankichi. All right, The Adventures of, Ta- of Dankichi was the most popular comic book prior to uh, the 1940s. Okay, it was part of a, it was a manga, uh, the manga that are so popular that come out of Japan today. Uh, one of the manga that was very popular during the 1930s was known as The Adventure, The Adventures of Dankichi, a cartoon that was serialized uh, from 1933 to 1939. Now, The Adventures of Dankichi was directly marketed to teenage Japanese boys as sort of a, the equivalent of a Robinson Crusoe story. Uh, a young Japanese boy who gets shipwrecked on an exotic island somewhere on, you know, the ocean, the Pacific Ocean somewhere with palm trees and whatnot, um, and then he has to survive by his wits among savage, scary natives and dangerous animals that are going to be found there. Um, and I always ask my students, uh, whenever we talk about the South Seas, to actually read uh, an English translation of The Adventures of Dankichi, one of these comic books that was produced in the 1930s. They actually, scholars have gone out, found one of these, and uh, translated it from the original Japanese into English, and you can read it as if you were a young Japanese boy in the 1930s. Now, I, I, I warn you, uh, before you read this comic book, uh, I think it was published by Stanford University Press, Stanford was so terrified of the politically incorrect, the insensitive, the pejorative depictions of South Seas native peoples that exist in the Dan Kichi comic book, um, that they even put a whole legal disclaimer that said you can only reproduce this comic book if you also reproduce the scholarly article that we have attached to it within this collection, this book that they published. Uh, you cannot produce this comic book, this English translation of this comic book of The Adventures of Don Kichi, uh, all by itself. It's too dangerous. You can only reproduce it if you also reproduce a scholarly essay, which essentially tears it apart and criticizes it and shows you what all the pejorative you know, things are and where they came from and how insulting it is to the local uh, uh, populations of Micronesia. All right, um, so that's sort of your 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 fair warning already of where we're going for this. Remember, this is the 1930s. This is not uh, you know something that you might see published in a mainstream venue today. All right, what is the plot of the adventures of Dankichi? Uh, all of them follow a very similar type of plot. Dankichi is a young boy. Uh, you know, he looks kind of like this is kind of drawn in an early Mickey Mouse kind of a style. Okay, Dankichi and his friend Mr. Kari. Mr. Kari is a mouse. Uh, Dankichi and Mr. Kari fall asleep while fishing, often Japanese island, and they while they're asleep, they drift off into the Pacific Ocean. And they, uh, their, their raft ends up bumping against an, an island with palm trees. It's clearly a tropical location of some sort. And uh, when they get on the island, they realize it's inhabited by dangerous animals and by dark-skinned savages. And they need to use their wits. They need to come up with various tricks uh, in order to overcome all dangers and survive. There's wild animals. There's humans who are cannibals and eat people. What is Don Kichi going to do? All right, first thing that Don Kichi has to do when he arrives on this island, according to this comic book, he needs to make a weapon because this is a savage land. I'm not in Japan anymore. I'm not in a civilized area. First thing he does, he tells Mr. Kari, I need to make a bow and arrow. Otherwise, quote, I won't feel safe in a place like this because here, muscles reign supreme. And you got to watch out because, you know, here, if you're not strong, if you're not ready to fight, You'll be eaten alive by the animals and by the natives. What sort of dangerous animals does he encounter? There's lions, there's elephants, there's crocodiles throughout, you know, various Dankichi stories, um, which is actually quite odd because uh, none of these animals actually exist <laughs> in any Micronesian or any South Sea island for that matter. There is just a generalized mishmash of scary animals from, you know, what are perceived as savage backward lands wherever they exist, anywhere in the world. Let's take some animals from the savage dark lands of Africa. We'll take some from the jungles of India. We'll take some from the jungles of, of Brazil and throw them all together. The creator of the strip, of the comic strip, Shimada, uh, uh, Shimada Keizo, 
said following, quote, I based the story on my own preconceptions of the tropical south as a place where wild birds and ferocious beasts traversed and Negro headhunters lived. The animals of Africa, India, South America, and Borneo all came out jumbled together. As each chapter progressed, I began to wonder where on earth Dankichi Island could be. It got to the point where even I didn't know. Hey, at least he's honest, right? <laughs> uh, so, in this particular co uh, uh, comic book, um, Dankichi is uh, fleeing a lion. He finds a lion on an island. The, island ch the lion chases him, and he runs away. As he's running away from a dangerous uh, lion, he encounters a tribe of dark-skinned natives. And he immediately recognizes these are a cannibal tribe. Now, the natives are drawn in what you would immediately recognize as a very pejorative way. All right. They look pretty much like apes. All right. Uh, slightly more humanoid versions of a simian animal. All right. With, you know, black skin. They're drawn in with uh, black ink as well. Uh, they don't look as human as Dankichi himself looks. They're, almost, they're, they're quite comical. Uh, Dankichi encounters this black savage cannibal tribe and he comes up with an idea. He says, uh-oh. I stick out like a sore th th thumb here because my skin color is not the same. He says, how am I going to blend in with them? And he comes up with his first clever idea. He says to Mr. Kari, we need to cover our bodies with mud so that we resemble a blackie. This is the term uh, that he uses. So that we resemble a blackie and we will fit in with them uh, because they're so dumb. Uh, they're, they're obviously going to be dim-witted. Uh, we can tell just by the, the color of their skin that this is going to be, uh, you know, a very backward, dim-witted uh, uh, type of people. So let's just cover our body with mud and they'll never notice the difference. We'll fit right in. One thing that you'll see throughout the adventures of Dankichi is language in which, uh, dialogue in which Dankichi um, and the natives are talking in such a way where they seem to be obsessed with skin color. Here's one line. Um, when uh, one of the native guards sees Dankichi, whose body has been, uh, you know, covered in mud, walking towards him, the dialogue that the creator of the strip puts into the mouth of that native guard says, a little blackie is heading this way. Hey, little blackie, where are you going? And you think about this and you're reading this and you're like, what's wrong with these lines of dialogue? And you realize they wouldn't talk like that. If you're living on an island and everyone has a similar skin color as you, you're not going to draw explicit attention to what your skin color looks like because that's normal. You're the standard against what other people are judged as. All right. So let's assume that he's dim-witted enough, as the creator of this strip imagines that the natives are going to be, uh, to fall for the ruse that this is actually someone who has the same skin color as him, even though it's just mud that's been smeared on his body. Is he going to then draw attention to the color of his skin when he talks to him? A little blackie is heading this way. Hey, little blackie, where are you going? What's going on here? Okay, is that the artist is putting his own cultural obsession with skin color and the pejorative associations that he has with that skin color into the mouths of the natives as if that was the most relevant part of their self-identity as well. All right, he's projecting his own prejudices, his own biases against darker-skinned people. Um, and then imagining that, oh, they clearly would also have this obsession as well. They would talk like this. Every time that they talk uh, to, to each other, they then would draw attention to their, their dark skin color. Because that's the most important thing for me. It's, a, it's like a, you know, a street sign holding up. These are dim-witted, savage peoples. All you need to know that. Uh, all you need to know in order to make that uh, conclusion is that they have dark skin color. All right. Um, and then throughout these cartoon uh, uh, comic books as well, uh, the natives are almost never given any sort of individual identity. All right. They're supposed to be anom uh, anonymous, half simian, half human uh, people who are more defined by the color of their skin than anything else. OK, uh, one of the other cartoons, uh, which is not reproduced here, but I, I was uh, encountered elsewhere, um, shows Dankichi giving the natives of whatever island he's on. Uh, he doesn't give them actual names. Uh, he either paints numbers on their chest. You're number one, you're number two, you're number three. Um, or he'll give them sort of what are imagined to be comical names based on local fruit. Uh, you're going to be named banana. You're going to be named pineapple. Again, uh, your names are too weird, too backward, too comical uh, in order for a civilized person like me to understand and make sense of all you people, uh, I'm going to have to just name you one, two, three, or four, or banana, or pineapple. 
Now, Dankichi's second trick. Uh, the skin color apparently works. They accept him. Look, a little blackie just like us. Um, his second trick is when he um, meets the king. When he meets the king, uh, the king says, who are you? Where'd you come from? We've never seen you before. And so he says, I'm a distant relative of your majesty's uh, you know, family. And again, the natives are so portrayed as so gullible and so dumb uh, that they instantly not only accept his, his blackness, they also accept his claims of descent. And they say, really? And they give a banquet for him. His trick only wears off when it rains, and the rain washes off his mud. Then, after the mud washes away, how is Dankichi's skin color described? Again, the creator of the strip inserts dialogue into the words of the natives. Um, that the natives, you know, wouldn't really have spoken themselves, but because the creator is so obsessed with skin color, he puts those words into them. Listen to what the natives say. He's a white boy. A white boy. All right, you remember that the episode? And uh, the Yamato race and discourses of race and whatnot and that sort of uh, that fringe idea, which also has a presence and, you know, sort of unspoken presence and mainstream ideology as well, that the Japanese are the honorary whites of Asia because we've done things that no other Asian has done. And we've met, uh, you know, we've 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 matched the abilities of the white people, even beaten them in war. We, too, are white. So here he is. He's outed as a white boy. <laughs> you got to love it. You got I mean, you don't love it, uh, but you got to love the connection to see all this sort of stuff. Uh, the white, the discourse of Japanese as, as the, the, the whites of Asia. Uh, here it is coming out in comic books for young Japanese boys to imbibe and digest in the 1930s. So the king tries to kill him for no reason other than he's white, because that's what savages do. They're just naturally hostile to white, of course. Dankichi then says, uh, you know, uh, uh, his sort of his, his response to the natives saying they're going to kill him is he's able to lasso the king, get a rope together, throw it around the king, lasso the king. And then Dankichi says, and here's another uh, wonderful line for us. Hey, Mr. Barbarian, you can't match the wisdom of the white man. Now he's using the word to describe himself. Uh, you might be uh, strong brutes, uh, but I have a brain, which you guys don't have. And you can't match the wisdom of the white man. So the king then apologizes and hands over his crown. And now Dankichi is king. This is once more, we see the colonial dynamic, which occurs, you know, in all empires. Um, in almost any place where you have uh, people who travel from one highly developed economy to a less developed economy um, and have the political representation behind them of a powerful state, knowing that they'll come to your rescue whenever you want to. Um, in Japan, you might be an unremarkable nobody, but in the less developed part of the world inhabited by savages, you are a special somebody uh, solely by virtue that you went there. Nothing else. Okay, uh, we see similar stories to this uh, with Japanese travelers going to Hokkaido, going to the Ryukyus, going to Taiwan, um, earlier on in the empire. Um, I'm nobody back home, but I go out into the colonies, uh, and, and I'm somebody simply by virtue of showing up. Okay, um, the only worthy foe that Don Kichi has to wrestle with is a monkey. All right, it's a monkey. It's not even the natives of the island. Now, the final scene. Dankichi wants to organize a native elite militia, a fighting force of 10 guys. How am I going to assemble an elite fighting force of 10 guys? And he decides, well, uh, the only thing these people know is how to use their bodies. Uh, they have no brain, so I'm going to select them through a primitive head-butting contest. And so the savages, the dark-skinned people, uh, have to use their brains for brute displays of strength because they don't actually use their brains, right? They're not as evolutionary advanced as us. So the way I'm going to find out who's the strongest here, who's the best, is to use the brain, which back in Japan we actually use for intellectual pursuits um, and, you know, wisdom, the wisdom of the white man. Here they're just going to bash their heads against one another. That's all that the brains of these guys are good for. All right. Note also the uh, 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 similarity with sumo wrestling. Uh, sumo wrestling is seen as a civilized man's sport back in Japan, and to the untrained eye, it looks like two big guys crashing into one another, all right? Um, but they're not crashing their heads. You almost see here uh, Dankichi's competition to create uh, uh, native soldiers. Um, it looks like sumo, 
but with one difference. Uh, here, it's sumo, where you bash your heads against one another. Uh, where back home, we do the more civilized version of bashing our bodies um, into one another. So only the white man, and here when we say white man, we're talking about the Japanese. Only the white man uses his head for the brain that's inside. This allows him to organize and manage and lead stupid dark-skinned barbarians who can't create their own army themselves and defend people like me from actually coming here. All right, again, I hope you all know that when I say these things, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking in, this is the, the voice of the comic book. Uh, obviously, these are not Professor Jacobs' own personal beliefs. All right, make sure we have that footnote in there. Um, and everything then is encapsulated in the final scene of the Dankichi comic book, in which Dankichi needs to go to the highest point on the island so he can raise a Japanese flag. Politics are involved too. Young Japanese boys are being taught the world is filled with savage barbarians. Uh, we go out there, we're a special somebody just by showing up. We'll be able to hoodwink the natives because we have a brain and they don't. Um, and then we need to take you know, formal control and place the rising sun flag uh, on this land to f incorporate it within the Japanese empire. How is Dankichi going to climb to the highest point of this island? He uses the natives' bodies, surprise, surprise, uh, uh, to turn them into a human bridge and then a human ladder to get over various crevasses, to climb various uh, uh, cliff faces, uh, turns them into, uh, literally walks on them. And in the end, the most denigrating at all is that when he's using them as a ladder, he literally steps on their heads, not even on their arms or legs or toes. So uh, uses their heads as his ladder to get to a higher uh, place. And then when he's at the top, just about to uh, uh, plant the flag in, he does the same thing to a lion at the top, steps on its head. So both the lion and the natives uh, get stepped on by uh, Don Kichi, uh, they're equating both of them with essentially the same thing. Uh, the natives are like wild animals. Very similar to a lion. The Dankichi serials were hugely popular. They were made into an animated film series in the 1930s as well. In fact, they're so influential that I actually have memoir accounts of Japanese soldiers who served in New Guinea and Micronesia during World War II, fighting the Americans and the British and the Australians. And in their uh, uh, oral history accounts, which my students read, these soldiers say that when I was uh, sent to fight, in New Guinea or in Micronesia, I fully expected that the land was going to resemble the, the Dankichi cartoons of my youth. I fully expected that's what the people are going to look like, that's what the islands are going to look like, these are the animals that would live there. And though these regions did not resemble Dankichi's world at all, and the soldiers would admit that to their credit, they would actually say, yeah, when I got there, I realized it had nothing, it bore no resemblance to Dankichi's island whatsoever. Nevertheless, in some of these memoir accounts, these same soldiers, while disavowing and repudiating the uh, geography and the human landscape and whatnot and all of that, uh, they still, in the same breath, well, in the next breath, uh, would invoke and reproduce the crude racial stereotypes that Dankichi had disseminated uh, in the comic book to describe the natives. One of the most vivid accounts, out in the ugliest language I remember from any one of these, um, is you'll get one Japanese soldier um, who was saying, you know, oh, there's no Japanese women down there, and we were, you know, uh, starving for so long and had no contact with, uh, you know, women anywhere. Uh, eventually, I, I, I just uh, managed to, you know, I think maybe he paid a prostitute or something like that, um, had sex with uh, a local native on the island of New Guinea. And his comment on that, uh, he tries to justify it in which he says, well, you know, when you're away from Japan for that long and you, know, you think every single day you're going to die, sex with the black jungle women was still sex if you were desperate enough. All right. You can still see the same pejorative cultural racial stereotypes that are being fostered and disseminated to young Japanese men in the 20s and 30s. Uh, you see it come out in their, their oral histories about their experience in the military down there. Um, and Dankichi wasn't the only one. It didn't exist in a vacuum. Okay, there were there there were popular songs. You remember, Japanese tourists were going to Micronesia uh, before the mandate, and then certainly during the mandate, it was their Hawaii. Uh, Japanese tourists were going down there, um, and there was a whole tourist industry. Songs would be written, plays would be performed. All right, one of the most famous ones. Uh, the the uh, it was a popular song called "The Chieftain's Daughter." The Chieftain's Daughter. Uh, it was so, so such a popular song associated with the South Seas that it was they actually sold sheet music versions of the music that could be sold, and you could re re recreate the song at home. Um, and they also made a film 
on The Chieftain's Daughter in the 1930s. What sort of image did these cultural productions like The Chieftain's Daughter stimulate in the, uh, uh, with regard to the South Seas? Uh, here are the lyrics, part of the lyrics for The Chieftain's Daughter in Japanese. My lover is the chieftain's daughter. She may be black, but in the south, that's a beauty. Down below the equator in the Marshall Islands, she dances under the shade of a palm tree. Dance, dance, drink raw sake. You're happy that tomorrow's the headhunting festival. Yesterday I saw her on the beach. Today she's fast asleep under a banana tree. Okay, you know, again, I'm nobody in Japan, but when I go abroad, I can marry the chieftain's daughter. My lover is the chieftain's daughter. Hey, she might be black, but that's considered pretty down there. Remember that line? <laughs> Even a black jungle lady is still okay when you're down there. What does she do all day? She dances under a palm tree. She dances. We drink alcohol. And tomorrow's the headhunting festival because she's barbaric, so she's happy about that. All right, so dancing, headhunting. Uh, sex, because she's a lover, I know, he's able to get the, the daughter of a chief, um, falling asleep under a banana tree, like Dankichi naming the, the locals, your name is Banana, that's the, that's the thing that stands out to us, what's relevant to us. Yep, this is, once again, like we said in our last episode, this is Japan's Orient, the concept of Japan's Orient exported outside of China and Korea. The Japanese are Asia's white people, and all the ugly cultural baggage that goes along with it, and it is their duty to teach everyone else in Asia how to behave and eventually leave their own barbarism behind. All right, next time. Now that we've covered both the territorial acquisitions and the accompanying political and cultural ideologies that constituted the Japanese empire prior to the outbreak of World War II, next time we need to turn back to the East Asian mainland and take a look at the straw that broke the camel's back and eventually led to the Second Sino-Japanese War, and eventually then World War II itself. I'm talking about the long-anticipated and awaited Japanese invasion of Northeast China, Manchuria. Next on the East Asian continental chopping block after Korea. Please join us for the invention of Manchukuo in episode 49 of Beyond Huaxia. <laughs>